something outside. What is that? Monster X Radio, on the shoulders of giants, talking old-timers with Thomas, the one, the only, Steenberg, for another show, I believe, episode 41. Is that right, Thomas? That's right. This is our 41st episode. Isn't that something? That Mm -hmm. is awesome. Mm -hmm. So how have you been, Thomas? It's been a minute since we did a show. Well, recovering from a knee injury, but other than that, doing okay for an old guy and an old timer there, Julie. <laughs> well, you know, I would never call you old, O L D. It's always O O L. See, there's the difference. Absolutely. And uh, you've been passing that off for 41 shows, and I still don't believe you. <laughs> Well, we definitely aren't getting any younger, and we're not the spring chickens we used to be. And bouncing back from things are, takes a little longer than it used to. So there's always that fun stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, well, I'm, look, I'm excited I'm, I'm about looking, tonight's show. Yo, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We have a friend, a personal friend of... Thomas is on the show tonight, and um, it's somebody that plays a very important, significant role in the whole uh, historical events of the Bigfootery world. Um, Very important work that he's done. Um, He hails from Canada, Todd Prescott. Todd, welcome to the show. Todd, Todd, are you there? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, oh, sorry, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. (laughs) The studio puts you on uh, hold for some strange reason. That was weird. But yes, we do have Todd in the house now, and um, glad to have you on. Todd, I know that you've had an interest in the whole enigma of the Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti uh, world since your elementary days, and then you became interested enough to become a, you know, going out in the field and investigating when you were 18 years old. Can you kind of give us an idea of how all that came to be? Well, of course, you know, like you said, I I started my interest in elementary school growing up in a a little village of 350 people there's not a lot to do so the library becomes your your place of refuge so to speak 
and uh, I did a lot of reading, and I was always I always had my nose in the zero hundred section, which many of you will remember was the the mystery section back then. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and really as a child of the seventies, it was, it was just such a, a good time and, uh, probably the best time because mysteries such as Sasquatch, Bigfoot and the Yeti and UFOs and, you know, Oak Island and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Those, those topics were covered all over the place. If, if you didn't find it in the, in, didn't find it in a book, you'd see it in a magazine, you'd mm-hmm. see it on TV, it was in the newspaper. So just it was just I was just surrounded by it. And then of course I grew up on the edge of a forest. Literally my backyard was a forest. My house was just on the edge. It wasn't a huge forest, but it was enough to to intrigue me and 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 really it was mysterious to me because there yeah. were things in that forest that you know, I didn't know were there. Like I, I didn't know foxes were there. I see a fox one day, and I didn't know that coyotes were there. I see a coyote one day. So it was just so intriguing to to grow up in that that era and be surrounded by all those mysteries. And then on, on top of that, on the edge of a forest. So uh, like Thomas can probably agree. I mean, just it was a great time because there was so much about the topic out there, and and, and you could access it. Even before the internet, it was everywhere. Wouldn't you agree, Thomas? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it was a much more interesting time because most people involved were more zoologically focused rather than going off in the strange and the wonderful we get today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and there, there was there was less ego, less look at me, look at mm-hmm. what I'm doing, look how important I am. It was, I mean. Of course, you, you're always going to have that with any study, but mm-hmm. there was just less of it. And people, you know, they they did work together a little more than, than people seem to nowadays, I would say. But all that aside, yeah, it definitely piqued my interest in everything um, that involved mysteries, but in particular Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti. That's the one I gravitated towards the most for whatever reason. And, and maybe the reason was because it just seemed the most – possible mm-hmm. it seemed like mm-hmm. if, if, there, if, if there's going to be a, a creature out there that's yet to be discovered sasquatch fits the bill um just because of all the historical evidence um all the witness accounts and you know the fact that we have hominids in our fossil records so there's there's just more chance of something like that existing and then the vastness of the forest as well throughout the world mm-hmm. so yeah i just i just read everything i could um and then uh just started really thinking about getting out into the field the problem was in a village of 350 people how do you find a like-minded individual who wants to go mm-hmm. out and look for sasquatch mm-hmm. it just was was not uh you know there, there was no one else that was interested in that and particularly enough to go out with me. So I just had to go it alone, and uh, I started reading about local reports and going to those areas. I had my license when I was 17, so um, Mom and Dad were kind enough to, to loan me the car, and, and off I went. And started looking around, snooping around, sniffing around, trying to, you know, catch a lead. And um, then, uh, then uh, you know, I, I really started focusing on just field studies and, and going out 
and ultimately and eventually I joined a uh, uh, like a a, a a touring band, a traveling band uh, of musicians, and we traveled through the province of Ontario. And Thomas knows Ontario because he was born here. So he knows just how large and vast Ontario is, and he knows there are numerous reports, and they're quite well-known to some of them, such as Old Yellowtop from Cobalt, Ontario. Um, it, it's, it's one of those almost as famous as Paddy, uh, maybe our answer to Paddy in Ontario. But interestingly, the reports of Old Yellowtop date back to at least 1906 and right up to the mid-70s, I want to say 1977 or so. So if it's the same creature, it's it lived a long time. Um, but anyways, yeah, I was looking around in Ontario, following up on, on reports, going to areas. Uh, and then that, uh, that led to another chapter. But I'm curious to see what Thomas thinks of Ontario, having uh, been born there and uh, spending some time. What are your thoughts on, on, on the province of Ontario, Thomas, and, and the possibility of Sasquatch? Well, the possibility of Sasquatch definitely exists because actually Ontario has more square mileage of dense forest country than even British Columbia has. It's, been, it's always been there. But when I started in, 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 in the late 1970s and started looking into the matter, I immediately got the impression that the Sasquatch was a West Coast phenomenon because no matter how much I looked, Looked into it. There were a few old little local stories of strange accounts. And of course, you mentioned Old Yellow Top. Uh, and, and as far as I know, the last reported sighting of Old Yellow Top was by a, uh, a logging crew in a bus in 1970. And they said the creature they saw looked like it had seen better days. And as far as I know, mm. maybe that was the last official sighting of Old Yellow Top. And that was in 1970. But that was the only one that really stuck out to me. I really started hearing about sightings in Ontario after I left and was in Western Alberta. Yeah. It, my whole, you know, my whole time in Ontario, I, saw, I heard of a lot of other cryptological mysteries, like around Kirkland Lake. There was a legend around the Kirkland Lake region of a giant snake that was coughing seen. Matter of fact, my late grandfather claimed to have taken a shot at it once in a swamp. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, <laughs> and there was the reports of little people, like little gremlin-like oh. things. As well. I can't remember that. But Sasquatch, not so much. So I naturally veered towards, well, it's a West Coast phenomenon. So I fought like hell when I enlisted in the Army to get posted out West, where I thought the Sasquatch was. And then now when I was here, I started hearing about reports, well, oh, Manitoba. Well, they've been seen in Manitoba. They've got to be seen in Ontario, too. Sure enough, I started hearing reports after I had left in much greater numbers. Yet when I was there, I hardly heard of anything at all. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's what's interesting is you're not the only one who was, was born in Ontario and ultimately left in part mm -hmm. maybe to look for Sasquatch on the West Coast. Uh, we have someone else. Um, that did the same, and that's, of course, uh, Dr. John Bindernagel. You're correct. Mm -hmm. He was born in Ontario, and, um, you know, he traveled abroad uh, as a, at working as a biologist, including stints in Africa and other places. But, you know, ultimately he, he, he ended up um, relocating to British Columbia to 
to really pursue his Sasquatch interests and studies um, mm-hmm. and research. Um, but yeah, for for some reason, Ontario and some of the other provinces and even some of the other some of the eastern U.S. states don't get the love they deserve when it comes to Sasquatch research. And a lot of people don't realize that the newspaper accounts from the East predate the ones from the West. I mean, in part maybe for for, for obvious reasons because the West was settled later. Um, Mm. But a lot of people just don't – they just can't fathom that uh, a Sasquatch could live in the East. And – just the other day, I, I um, was listening to an, an old podcast from 2003 with uh, Robert Morgan as host and Don and, and, and sorry Bob Gimlin as the special guest. And Robert Morgan, I think that he actually was born in Ohio, but ended up going uh, uh, to live in Florida and out west. And he said that he did not believe, by any stretch of the imagination, that Sasquatch were in Ohio until one of his good friends had a really good sighting and encounter and then he thought wait a second i know my buddy's not making this up so maybe there is yeah. something to the ohio sasquatch and of course peter byrne long time yeti, he still does yeah yeah sasquatch bigfoot researcher he still will not uh admit or or or, or even begin to imagine that sasquatch lives east of the rockies and he's he's on record stating that several times and I have another guy who 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 I know um, also just he just he just can't believe that Sasquatch uh, w- could live in the East because in his mind they're only a West Coast uh, North North America and, and Canada West Coast um, North America being U.S. and Canada West Coast phenomenon, which which is a shame because there's definitely a lot of historical reports in the Eastern part of the U.S. and Canada and Ontario. Yeah, well, uh, what I think it was, Todd, is there were reports, but they, they remained local, known locally, and really didn't go beyond local. Old Yellowtop is a prime example of that. Uh, and, and the Skunk Cape in Florida and others. There were, other, there were odd stories, but they, came, they, they stayed local. And then in the early 70s came a movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, and that sort of opened the doors. I, I think you're right, Thomas, and, and also mm-hmm. Ontario did not have uh, a John Green or a Rene de Hinden. Absolutely, yeah. There, were, there, was, there wasn't really anybody back then trying to trying to open up and look into the matter, really. Yeah, you know, B, BC just had, uh, you know, they had J.W. Burns, John Walter Burns, who created the word Sasquatch. Uh, coined it, let's say, and he followed up on a lot of reports, wrote for the newspapers out there, um, including the first magazine article, McLean's, April 1st, 1929, um, where we see Sasquatch, the word in print, probably for the first time. And, and it was a mispronunciation and a misprint. <laughs> yes, wow. it seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And and so he he sort of passed the, uh, the torch in a roundabout way to, to Green and to Hinden in a roundabout way. I'll, I'll say that because De Hinden didn't know about Burns until he got the Sasquatch bug. Um, but certainly Green, um, my understanding is that he knew about Burns and was well aware, but he didn't really give Sasquatch any, any chance of, 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 of being real until, um, you know, 
the Hinden stormed into his office and he heard from some good friends that that they had seen or, or knew about Sasquatch reports, and then it kind of started making him think maybe Sasquatch is a thing, a real thing. Well, John, John was on the assumption that it was just an, what they, well, how they referred to it back in those days as an Indian legend. And yeah. he thought they were talking mm-hmm. about Indian people. When they said Harry, they, he met, thought, everyone thought they meant like big Indians with long hair on the head. Yeah. And then Rennie yeah. DeHinden showed up in his office one day in 1956, and said he was going to look for the Sasquatch, and Green always told me he did his best to talk Rennie out of it because he thought it was a waste yep. of time. But then he, Rennie, through Rennie, he started talking to people, and 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 then the Ruby Creek incident uh, came uh, came to light. And, uh, it, it happened in 1941, but they didn't really <laughs> look into it until Green and the Hinden did. Yep. And uh, they weren't talking about large Indians with hair on the head. They were talking about an ape-like creature. Yep. And that's how the ball got rolling. We don't know yep. anything about Joseph Dunn, the deputy sheriff, who came up to Ruby Creek at the time of the Ruby Creek incident. And no one, no one knows why he was interested in the first place. But he actually predates yep. Green and the Hinden and everybody else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we just don't, uh, as you said, we don't have a lot about him. And unfortunately, the casting that he made uh, was lost to time. Uh, legend has it that it was it broke into many pieces, was dropped and forgotten about. It was used as a door stopper by his family. <laughs> Eventually got broke. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how Sasquatch in Canada got started. Yep. Bigfoot in the United States came about in 1957 when those tracks were found in, when they were building the Buff Creek Access Road in in, in Northern California. They'd never and heard of the Sasquatch in Canada. They didn't know what else to call it. So a reporter named Andrew Gonzoli wrote an article and took a picture of Jerry Crew who had cast these tracks around his bulldozer. Big footprints found. The Associated Press got a hold of it. Big and foot were put together. Bigfoot was born. Mm. Yeah, the, the the word Bigfoot was born. Um, yeah, and and it was big space foot. It wasn't Bigfoot, all one word. Gonzoli yeah. wrote it as two separate words. But Thomas, you you know, but some of our our listeners may not know that 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 word Bigfoot was also being used prior to to Crew um, in '58 and Gonzoli. Uh, Sort of, sort of coining the word in the press because the locals were using that word, and there was actually a newspaper article in 1955 that used the word in reference to large ape-like, man-like creatures, and yeah. it also it also found its way. I think it was a San Francisco Examiner, and then um, a UFO researcher named Morris Jessup also referenced that newspaper article in a book that he wrote in 57 or it might have been 56 and then there was that tv show that also had an episode um on bigfoot that clearly was in reference to you know the hairy man-like creature and they used the word bigfoot as well uh pre-1958 i want to say that was 57 the tv show or 56 mm-hmm. so there was a little bit of of usage of the word in association with the, the, the man, ape-like creatures, but really, as, as, as you said, Thomas, the Jerry Crew uh, cast and the Gonzoli 
a newspaper article really put Bigfoot the word on the map. But clearly, um, uh, you know, people were aware of it in that area and other areas too, but they weren't calling it Bigfoot. It's just that it really took off in 58 with Gonzoli and the Associated Press, of course. Yeah, and of course, the term word Bigfoot was also in the in the late 1800s for a uh, a I believe it was a uh, Sioux Indian warrior who was a big yep. man and had huge feet, and he was considered hostile. And yep. the cavalry was hunting for him as well as the rest of the army, and he left big tracks, so they called him Bigfoot. And there was there was there was more than more than one uh, First Nations. <laughs> North American Indian, as as our American friends call him, there was more than mm-hmm. one Bigfoot uh, reference. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and, and 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 for for someone like myself who who looks on eBay and 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 you know goes on different uh, places where they sell books and magazines, I've been caught a few times going, "Whoa, there's an article in this magazine I've never heard of about Bigfoot," and 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 of course I have to ask the seller. Is that Bigfoot the legendary man-like creature, or Bigfoot one of the two Native Americans? And uh, so, so there's been a few times where I I bought something thinking it was Bigfoot, uh, the one I'm interested in, and then uh, I I get the magazine article and it's it's the Sioux warrior. I'm like, no. Oh wow. Yeah. So <laughs> anyone who out there who's collecting, uh, make sure you uh, don't confuse. You know. The, the two subjects because yeah it threw me off for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, so basically Sasquatch is the Canadian name and Bigfoot's the American name for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and then mm-hmm. and then there's the Yowie in Australia, which also has uh, articles in the newspaper, you know, that date back a long time ago. So it's not like everything just started in, um, you know, the Bluff Creek Willow Creek area. Uh, in 1958 for these hairy man-like creatures, as some would allude to. Uh, clearly, uh, Canada has had reports for many years that made the newspapers, mm-hmm. as has the U.S., the eastern states, the Midwest. They just didn't have a name for it. Um, sometimes there was a local name. It might be Momo, or it might be you know Skunk Ape, or it might be you know Old Red Eyes, or, or mm-hmm. it might be Stone Man, or Stick Man, or Hairy Man, or Gorilla like creature um you know i was reading a book about uh, the Bellacoola indians or the Bellacoola first nations people in canada and for those who don't know Bellacoola is in british columbia coastal mid bc and it's an old book from 1924 which is a significant year of course because uh in in the in the history of sasquatch you have um you know the albert osman uh, alleged, and I'll say alleged very strongly, alleged kidnapping, mm-hmm. and then of course the uh, the Ape Canyon incident. So this book was written by a, an anthropologist at that time, and he was writing letters. The book is really just about letters that he was sending to his family and friends and and, and fellow uh, archaeologists and anthropologists, talking about what these the Belakula people are doing, um, customs and whatnot. And one of the letters, one of the first letters he writes is he, he says that someone told him about a gorilla-like creature that lives in the woods. And this is 1924. Mm. So this is long before Bigfoot, uh, you know, in 1958 come into, came into existence. So, I mean, we've got a lot of record, historical record of, of these man-like creatures in the woods uh, 
from both the settlers and from, of course, the the indigenous peoples of, of various mm-hmm. areas. So I, I found that interesting because I knew that the the, the Bellaculans, um, I knew that they they talk about like their version of Sasquatch. I think it's called Sninik. Um But I I was I was quite intrigued to read some of the letters from this anthropologist. And the one in particular that, that, that mentions that someone told them in 1924 or maybe it was 1923 um, that that there's these these gorilla things in in the forest because everyone knows the difference between a gorilla and a bear and and, and it's interesting because a gorilla was kind of a newish thing in 1924 worldwide I mean yeah we knew about them in the late 1800s but as far as like it was a newer recognized animal let's say. I think a lot of the interest in pursuing, like in the early years with a very young Rene DeHinden and a very young John Green and other people, what really sparked their interest had nothing to do with what people uh, uh, at first around here were saying they were seeing. It was all the publicity given to the Yeti investigations yep. going on in the night, and Hillary and people like that, you know, and of course the tur- the the Western press gave the Yeti its own name, the Abominable Snowman. And that name caught on. And there was a lot of references back in the 20s and 30s to the Abominable Snowman mystery. As a matter of fact, one of the, the whole reason Rene got involved as a young man, he was working in a dairy farm in Alberta, uh, just outside Calgary, Alberta, and the, he was just sitting in the kitchen with the, the, the dairy farmer he worked for, and there just happened to be a story on the CBC radio about an expedition going on into the Himalayas to look for the Yeti. And Rennie said, boy, wouldn't it be interesting to go on something like that? And the farmer said, well, you don't need to go all the way over there. They got things like that, hairy things like that in British Columbia. <laughs> and I think that was 1953, <laughs> December 3rd. Yeah. Because I was just reading about that, and that's what sparked Rene's interest. He, he had one of those drop-the-coffee-cup moments. Like, oh, my mm-hmm. God. And he probably shot like a rocket out the door with his thumb out to British Columbia. And and that's really what, what, what started his, his life, his life pursuit. And he was like, uh, you know, a dog on a bone. And, and, and you know, Thomas had the, the pleasure and honor to spend a lot of time with Rene in person. I only ever spoke to Rene on the phone, and that was one time I was supposed to – follow up and meet with him for lunch but i never did it's a regret that i that'll never forget or live down um but i did get to meet john green and spent a lot of time with him so i'm happy about that but renee was the first researcher um that i actually was in contact with and i'm i'm curious how thomas met renee and john green Mm -hmm. because i don't think i've ever had a chance to ask thomas about that and i'm sure the listeners would love to hear it as well if thomas is willing to indulge us well, uh, I first met Rene when I when I got started in the late seventies. I I started putting out ads in the local press. Uh, Sasquatch. Anyone who thinks they may have had a sighting of this creature, please contact Thomas Steemerk on the phone number. And uh, my phone was ringing almost on a on a daily basis. It was incredible. Uh, I met Rene because he actually called me. He was just happened to be driving through heading back to the B.C. coast, and he was spending a couple of days in a campground on Lake Louise, and he asked if I would come up and talk to him. And I said, okay, sure, no problem, because I was really excited. I read a lot about Rene and 
I was very excited to meet, meet him. I had met Green a couple of years before and was thus warned. <laughs> and uh, went up, I went up to the campground. I drove uh, drove up to Lake Louise to the campground, and I recognized his Green Hornet truck immediately, and I could hear what sounded like dishes clinking in there. And and I knocked on the wall, and I said, uh, Mr. DeHinn and Thomas Steenberg here, and I just hear a voice coming out, Who cares? <laughs> I was be- and that was the beginning of my long association of friendship with Ray Dan, the late Ray Dan. Oh, <laughs> well, Ray was a fascinating fellow. He, he was. Um, he, he loved, uh, uh, other than the Sasquatch, he loved history, especially military history. The man, the man knew everything about the the German invasion of Russia from <laughs> Operation Barbarossa. <laughs> he, he could rattle wow. off who did. What unit did what? He, he knew it all, and he was incredibly intelligent for for a man who never went beyond dropped out of public school. He had a horrible childhood. He was basically mm. sold in Switzerland, in native Switzerland. He was basically sold off to work with a family that let him live in the barn. They wouldn't let him in the main house only briefly on Christmas Day, and then he had to go back out to the barn again. And so when he when he immigrated to Canada in the early 1950s, he left all that behind and never looked back. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a sad story. Um, mm-hmm. What what Renee went through, and 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 maybe some of that was carried over when he got here, and and you know there was a, a an edge of how can I say it nicely? I mean, Thomas knows he was he was a little bit bitter about things. And, oh yeah. Uh, wasn't, afraid, wasn't afraid to speak his mind, and and he he was rarely wrong. Even even when he was wrong, he was mm-hmm. rarely wrong. Um, but you know, all, all that aside, he's he did so much for for the study, and that can't be um, overlooked because I mean, he he took the Patterson Gimlin film overseas and showed it to mm-hmm. some, some some people who had some. You know things to say about it that that wouldn't have been said otherwise, including uh, Dr. Donald Greve, who was a bio, biomechanics expert, and and we've got a recording of that, thankfully. So Rene, he he's one of the you know the earliest of the archivists. Uh, of course, John John um, J W Burns, John Walter Burns, he he did save some of his materials and and he wrote about some of the things he collected, but but his his collection was after he passed away was left with one of his sons and one of his sons uh, eventually gave it to a, uh, a daughter or it was a, a one of one of their, their nieces or nephews. Um, and then, and then we believe that maybe uh, Burns collection went back to the Chehalis, but we're not certain of that. Maybe Thomas knows, but I've been looking into that. I think, I think maybe the niece still has it. But Rene collected everything and kept everything, receipts, matchbooks. Like he – I mean Thomas knows. The guy collected everything, um, and, and we're thankful for that because that interview with Dr. Donald Grief, he, he recorded it on cassette recorder. And then you know, people got a hold of that. I ultimately got a hold of it, put it up on my YouTube channel. So it's there for everyone, thanks to Rene and, of course, Dr. Donald Grief. Um, that we have that now, and that that's I think from I want to say seventy two Thomas, that would have been his his trip to Europe. Yeah, 
Britain and to the Soviet Union. Yes, yeah. I mean, he went to England. He went mm-hmm. to, uh, I think, Sweden or Switzerland. Uh, mm-hmm. He went to Russia. Uh, a few places he went to. And he was just trying to get anyone and everyone with any credibility to look at the film and make a determination and, and offer you know, an expert opinion. And, and he got that with Donald Grieve, probably one of the most recognized biomechanics in the world, looking at that film and going, well, if, it's, you know, if it was shot at uh, 16 frames per second, then, then it's this. If it was shot at anything more, then it's this, it, you know, making determination whether it could be human or not. So it's just fascinating that Rene had the foresight to do something like that, um, and we have that on record. We have it. We have that recording. He kept those things, um, and ultimately, as Thomas knows, he he was able to um, you know gain the rights, uh, partial rights to the Patterson Gimlin film uh, via mm-hmm. Bob Gimlin, and um, you know he he did he did permit documentaries and TV shows and news segments and magazines and books. Of course, he made a dime from it, but he 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 allowed them to use in print and and in media the film. He could have just as easily said, well, you know what. No one's going to see this ever again. But he wanted to share, you know, at a cost. Of course, everyone has to make a buck. Um, he had to supplement his his, his low income. Um, but uh, he, he shared that information with people, and and he was out there. He was out there probably more than anyone, boots on the ground, out there following up. I know I talked to a, a guy that he took out on a few expeditions in the late '60s, and they spent weeks and weeks out in the mountains. It wasn't like sitting – Renee wasn't sitting at a computer or a typewriter. He was out there doing mm-hmm. it. Like yeah, yeah. And Renee, Renee was really the one that got Dr. John Napier really curious about it as well. Oh, I thought maybe it was Sanderson that, that uh, uh, tapped him mm. on the shoulder. So it was Renee. It was already established through Sanderson, but Renee sealed it. Ah, and that's that's interesting. But yeah, Rene, um, he was he was quite an interesting character all around. Um, but 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 you know, all, all of his 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 flaws with his with his anger issues and and, and things like that. You know, what he did for the study trumps that, in my opinion. Um, and of yeah. course, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Rene was Rene. There's no other way to describe him. Yeah, you 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 either loved him or you hated him. Or, or yeah. you just tolerated them, um, yeah. and and, yeah. and again, maybe maybe I'm not the best person to to, to say those things because I only spoke with him one time on the phone. Um, but you know, I know others like Thomas and of course John Green, who spent a lot of time with Renee, and and as as a lot of people know, with John Green and Renee, they eventually had their falling out and went their mm. separate ways. But but interestingly enough, um, you know, Renee would send a nasty letter to to John Green. One week, and then the next letter is, "Hey John, I'm wondering if you could uh, help me out here. I need a favor. Uh, I, you know, I need I need those slides from from 19, yeah. uh, you know, 67 August. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'll come over and borrow them." And he's like, "Okay, no problem, buddy." So it's just so funny how those two were almost like an old married couple in some respects. They had That's a vicious funny. divorce, and then they would see each other uh, casually. Well, you remember me on our first. First or second episode, I told you what really broke up the DeHind and Green partnership. Oh, yeah. Back. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> was it Thomas? Uh, uh, I'm not privy to the to that uh, first episode. Um, I haven't gone back to listen to all the episodes yet. But was it the uh, the incident on uh, Blue Creek Mountain with the with the gun? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. Uh, I know that uh, fairly well. Uh, yeah. So that that that's Renee for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Green Green said to me, I wasn't going near him after that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you yeah. think? <laughs> and, and 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 of course, you know, Renee kind of went on record to say that he he didn't like that Green was sharing the information. Renee wanted to keep a little bit of it closer to his sleeve. Um, mm-hmm. but, but but Green wanted to share it with anyone and everyone, and Renee really didn't want that. And I think that also um, put a wedge between them too. Oh yeah, like Renee's attitude was, he's published my photographs and his books without permission, and Green's response was, mm-hmm. "You wouldn't have those pictures if I didn't pay your way down to Northern California." <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting that Renee said that because. Because Green gave him, you know, boxes and boxes of books to sell, and Renee got a cut of those sales. Yeah. So it's kind of funny how that's that funny. how that played out. Yeah, Renee could be. I always like to say I love the late Renee DeHinden, and he loved me sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a fair weather friend, maybe was he? Yeah. 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 No. Well, Thomas, so when he got he got he got something on him, he hated it. <laughs> you got something on you, he loved it. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Thomas. Um, you knew Bob Titmus. That's someone who I never got to to meet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I I almost. I mean, I had an opportunity, but I blew it. And and I'll I'll quickly tell you that because it's another one of those. Damn it! Why did why why did I do that? Um, same with Renee. I talked to him on the phone, um, and then and then I didn't and then didn't follow up with meeting him. In the case of Bob Titmus, I found myself in Harrison Hot Springs in 1995 because I was out there playing with a band, traveling around the province, and so I thought I'd stop in at Hot Springs and give John Green a call, knowing at the time, you know, harking back to '95, you got a phone booth, phone booth, and a phone book, and you got your your dime. Or maybe it was a quarter at that time. Yeah. I don't know, but one or the other. And so I put my my coin in there and uh, called up Green, and I ended up hanging up on him because I just freaked out uh, when I heard his voice. I'm like, oh god, I I was young and you know, and 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 scared. And so, but when I talked to John Green eventually in 2012, he said, and I and I and I told him about that story. He chuckled, and he said, you know. You should have followed through because Bob Titmus was living across the road from me. You could, I, I would have invited oh. Bob over. We could have sat down and talked about everything. And I went, oh, my God, what a missed opportunity. So, Thomas, I want to hear your thoughts on Bob Titmus, if, if you would. Well, Bob Titmus lived in John and June Green's old house. John and June yes. Green lived in this particular house till for a little while uh, in, in the mid-'80s. They decided to move to Vancouver Island, and they sold the house to Titmus. Yep. And when they came back, they ended up on that house in, uh, in on Nazarene Street, yep. which was just, just a couple of streets away from Bob Tetmas in yeah. their old house. So they were they were good friends right up until the day Bob Tetmas died. I first met Bob Tetmas, I think, in 1982, and uh, we we spent some time out in the west side of the Harrison Lake. And John always told me Tetmas is the best I know for finding tracks. And Titmus, I, I found him 
absolutely meticulous. Like he would, he would look at anything, and he would look and say, "No, that's not a track." And I could understand why he thought that way. And then we go off, and he'd look, look up there. And we'd look up there, and it looks like a marking in a tree. So we'd hike up there and look at that. Oh, yeah, bear claw marks. That's what those are. Okay, yeah, fine, yeah. Titmus was, was uh, meticulous, but he suffered from nagging back issues for most of his adult mm-hmm. life after he had that accident in his boat. That, uh, that burned out, that burned on him, and, and took away a lot of his casting collection when he was in the Bellacoola region. Remember, the late, the late Texas millionaire Tom Slick financed Titmus to for what was called the British Columbia expedition. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and DeHinden begged to be able to go up there with him, but Titmus and DeHinden couldn't stand each other. They couldn't <laughs> stand each other. He said. He, and Timmy said, if you bring that Swiss oddball up here, I'm out. <laughs> and Why they, do you think they, they despised each other at, uh, right from the beginning, uh-huh. from the word. And I think that dates all the way back to the Pacific Northwest Expedition in Northern California in the late 1950s. But poor Bob, uh-huh. Bob, he, the last few years of his life, he couldn't move very well because of, of, of back ailments. And he basically just, he, he, lived in his house, did his research, never sought publicity. He never sought publicity. He would go on when I, on a, a show like uh, 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 Positively Northwest in Washington when he, he was asked, but he, he never sought publicity. He basically, I remember um, the last time there was tracks found outside of uh, a campsite in Sasquatch Provincial Park that, too, people phoned me about, and I was living in Alberta at the time. I was called by the or the, or the ranger who collects the fees, and I was ca- called by the man who was actually in the site who first found the tracks, and both of them called me, and and they didn't know the other one had done also. So I called John Green and Timmons, and they both went out and investigated it for me, and they said, you know what, Thomas, you're not going to believe this, but for some reason the parks people decided to wipe out the tracks before we got there. Oh. Yeah, and that's the only incident I know of where someone in a position of authority intentionally destroyed evidence before it could be looked at by by researchers. Mm-hmm. That's the only incident I know of. Yeah. You know, Thomas Titmus gets a bad rap, and and some some of the the listeners may not know um, Titmus's role in Sasquatch studies and research, um, and, mm-hmm. and for those. Those who don't, um, it, it really harkens back to him, Bob Titmus, showing Jerry Crew how to cast a prince. Yeah, because he, he, he ran a taxidermy business down there at the time, yeah. Yeah, so he was a taxidermist, I think in Redding, right? Redding, California? Redding, uh, California. Or was, yeah, or maybe or- Orleans, uh, Orleans at the time. But, yeah, so he, he somehow hmm. uh, was an acquaintance of Jerry Crew. And he showed Jerry Koo how to cast a print, and then Jerry was, was ultimately able to, you know, put that information to use and ended up casting the print that, that changed everything. And then, of course, yeah. as, as Thomas spoke, um, Titmus was involved in Pacific Northwest Expedition from, I guess, 59 to 60. And then um, 
you know, when that folded, uh, he he got funding. Both him and Green got funding from from Tom Slick, the uh, the, the Texas oil man, oil tycoon. And something that that people need to know is that Titmus and Green were being they were on a retainer. They were financially compensated for their time uh, when they were doing that that BC expedition in I guess it would be. 61, I think, when it started. And there's a letter that, that Bob Titmus wrote um, to Tom Slick, and he said, you know, Tom, uh, I'm not finding anything up here because he was up in the Kitimat area, uh, um, coastal BC, and he said, I'm not finding anything. I want you to take me off the retainer because I don't feel good about you paying me if I'm not finding anything. And to me, that spoke volumes. That meant that Here's a man who has every opportunity to make more money by faking evidence, just writing Tom saying, "Oh yeah, things are looking great. I'm finding this and that." Because back then, you know, people went on your word. You, you know, you weren't right. able to take a picture and 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 upload it to email and or put it to Facebook or or Instagram and say, "Look what I found." It was all, you know, they took your word for it. So here is Titmus saying. I'm not finding anything. Take me off the retainer. I don't feel good about you paying me. To me, that's mm-hmm. folk volume. about point. integrity. Yeah, and a mm-hmm. lot of people don't know that about Titmus. He had every opportunity to hoax and make money from it. Yet there he is mm-hmm. writing slick saying, dude, take me off, take me off the retainer because I'm not finding anything. That really made me go, whoa, wow. Yeah, and even after uh, Slick died, he, he carried on the kid on that area, making a living any way he could. He even had, he was using his own car as a taxi to yes. try to make some yes. money to remain in the area. Well, he, he never really left Kitimat boat, boat sank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he stayed up there. You're absolutely right. And then mm-hmm. um, found his way back to uh, um, uh, uh, Harrison Hot Springs. Um, I know I spoke with uh, when I was out there visiting with Green. I also looked up someone, someone whose name came up when in conversation with Green, and I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But she was, she was Bob Titmus's uh, nurse up until his, his last days, and uh, oh, as it, rumor oh, has oh. it was also his 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 girlfriend. Yeah, I don't want to say well. the name. Out, yeah, I don't want to say the name out of respect. Um, uh, but uh, I sat down with her, and so she she shared some very inter- interesting information, but certainly did not admit that she was a girlfriend. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's but, just uh, a rumor. We, we, won't, we don't go into rumors here. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of girlfriends, uh, yeah, Renee DeHinden had a girlfriend who was a researcher as well and an author. Yeah, but we, well, that's, book. that's only a rumor. We don't we don't speak into gossip now. No. <laughs> yeah, my God. Well, you know, you know what, Julie. Someone said that you learn more about people when you research Sasquatch than you learn about Sasquatch. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. There's you know that, that you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, let me was... let me tell you what I wanted to do though before we got too much further because we're we're getting in almost to the top of the hour, and I I want to make sure our listeners know about your the archives that you have worked so hard. Um, on doing for everybody. Yeah, I want to also ask you, Todd, how did you get the idea to begin the archive? Uh So um, back in 2010, 2009, 2010, I started working on a book series about Sasquatch Bigfoot researchers. 
and I was compiling names, and, and, and part of that process was buying old books, buying old magazines, newspaper articles to, to find as many names as I could because the internet, as wonderful it is, as it is, um, you know, if, if you're looking for something you know, from the past, it can be difficult if no one's uploaded anything pertaining to it. Mm-hmm. So I was having trouble finding information on, on specific people that, that I found um, or heard about through word of mouth. And I was in contact with John Green because I knew that he had uh, you know, a long list of people that he'd worked with over the years and, and communicated with. And so I was sort of bugging him to, to you know, look up this person and, and you have an address or a phone number. And eventually John said, listen, I can't keep doing your research for you. And this is exactly how he said it. I can't keep doing your research for you. Just come out to my place and do it yourself. And I mean, I said, John, are you inviting me out to go through your files? He said, yes. Basically, stop bugging me to do your research. Come out and do it yourself. So, so, so I, 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 I that's what I did. Um, I, I booked a flight out to British Columbia, not knowing what I was getting into. But again, I wasn't thinking I'm going to archive stuff. I was just looking for information on on certain people that I'd read about or heard about, um, and and wanting to find more names. So I went out to John Green's, and uh, he opened up his his office door and said, "Have at it." And and he just he literally just said go for it and then you walked into the other room and started reading the newspaper <laughs> and I just oh opened up the filing cabinet and I just went through uh, and um, I I was there for the day and and I'd only not not even scratched the surface I it was literally I just moved a speck of dust and Jeez. but I was I was there I was there the, that first time I think for four or five days and 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 that was my time and I said to John you know. I, I, I've only really scratched the surface. And he said, well, then you're going to have to come back. And I said to him before I left, I said, John, you know, this stuff needs to be saved. It needs to be scanned um, somehow, um, electronically saved because, you know, it's, it's all paper and, and, and paper is vulnerable. If, if you have it scanned, it can, it can hold the test of time, hopefully. And he said, well, you know, no one's really interested in this stuff. It's useless information, and I don't see the value in doing that. Um, and I thought, Really? So I left it at that, and um, um, but he said you got to come back because you know you're not done. So I I, I went home, booked another flight, uh, took time off from work, got some money together because it's not cheap to fly out there, and you know, and, right. and at the time I was renting a hotel room uh, or motel room rather, and so I, I I went at it again. But when I actually I, I I should back up when I went there the second time and knocked on John's door, and he's like, oh hi Todd, and I I was about to say hi John, and he said. You know, I thought about what you said, and I, I guess I could let you scan this stuff because maybe, maybe some people see a value in it. And I'm like, John, you could have told me this, like, because, the, you know, maybe a couple weeks ago because I could have brought a scanner. So I had to go <laughs> – I had to drive, drive back to Vancouver to pick up a scanner because there was no scanner capable of doing what I needed it to do in the area because it's, it's a small area. Harrison Hot Springs is not a lot around, not a big mall or, or you know, a Best Buy or Future Shop, so – I had to boogie into Vancouver, an hour and a half away. So, anyways, oh um, yeah. So that's when I got the idea. Yeah, okay. There's a lot of stuff here. Uh, it needs to be somehow shared, um, and that's kind of when you know I thought, well, how can I share this? I could create a, a, a website, but that's a lot of information. And I started thinking, well, maybe YouTube's the way to go because it seems to be the new TV, and everyone's into YouTube, um, and there's no expense. Um, to, to put up your videos. Um, so, yeah, I had to go through the, the John Green stuff 
for three years. Literally, I went through it for three years, reading everything, wow. cataloging, summarizing everything, um, indexing everything. Um, and that's when I said, okay, I'm going to put some stuff up on YouTube. And I did. I started with some old letters that John had written, uh, an interview that Roger Patterson had done with um, Fred Beck from the Ape Canyon uh, incident. John Green had a copy of that. So that's one of the first few things I put up on my YouTube channel that's called the Sasquatch Archives. And really that channel is just to to display various facets of, of Sasquatch research, historical facets that maybe would have been lost to time. And, you know, I have to thank uh. John Green for, for allowing me to do that. And then that, uh, that led to other people sharing their materials, such as Larry Lund and Gene Robinson um, and, and, and many other people too. So, yeah, it's called the Sasquatch Archives up on YouTube. Uh, you'll find it very easy if you just type in the Sasquatch Archives. And then um, I, I started another another channel to complement that one because um, there's a lot of TV stuff like TV shows, newscasts, news segments, documentaries, um, old old local TV programs about the subject. Um, and I had so much stuff on my channel that people were saying it's hard to find things. And plus, I was also worried about copyright because a lot of the old TV shows and documentaries. There's always that copyright lingering, and you know I always go out of my way to try to get permission to use things. But when the producer and the director and the camera people are all deceased, it's hard to to get permission to do anything. So mm-hmm. you know I I I, I did want to chance things with having um, YouTube take down the channel. So I created another channel as a safeguard to just display the stuff that you know may have copyright issues, uh, but the that one's called the Sasquatch Archives TV, just the two letters T and V. Um, but the main channel, the Sasquatch Archives, features old lectures, conferences. Um, I'm starting to, to show some old podcasts or display those. It's got some old interviews. Uh, so it's, it's more of the um, academic stuff, uh, whereas the, the Sasquatch Archives TV channel is more of the, uh, the media stuff, the sensationalistic stuff like Oh, I was you know kidnapped by a Sasquatch in 1977. <laughs> I, I I had its baby, and you know that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, I love the way you published published like the, mm-hmm. the 1989 ISC conference in Pullman. I I was there. I spoke at, it, but I never saw any of that footage before. And uh, I, I I imagine you got that from Larry. Yes, I have to give a huge thanks to Larry Lund, the Sasquatch sleuth. Mm-hmm. He, he has saved so much stuff, collected so much stuff, and he's been so gracious with me. Um, he, he had worked with Gene Robinson, another researcher, and a guy named Tom Casino, another researcher, mm-hmm. and, and they, they got some stuff from Larry. And then through, through Gene Robinson and Tom, um, some stuff was sent to me, some old VHS tapes, and so I've had to um, transfer those digitally. And then, yeah, so Larry, Larry it's, has been very instrumental in a lot of that old conference footage, a lot of it. And Don Keating, too, has, has been gracious to provide, provide some stuff, as have others. I don't want to leave anyone out, but there's, there's so many people. Dustin Severs, uh, also um, John uh, Horrigan. There's so many people. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have been helpful. So I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm just a vessel. I, I'm, I'm the guy that's just been able to collect this stuff and then share it through YouTube. Um, so it, it, there's other people like Thomas um, and Renee Dehin and John Green, of course, um, rest in peace. Without, without them 
keeping keeping the stuff, I wouldn't really have a whole lot to share. So I have to give you know the ultimate thanks to people people like that who who did keep it and have allowed me to to share it, or or through other people who have allowed me to share it. And I gotta admit, Todd, well, you've amazing. done a yeah, you've done a great job. I mean, your yeah. archives a way of keeping the history of this research alive. A lot of stuff would have been forgotten about people for a long time if you hadn't put it up. Yeah, and, and, and to me, it's a labor of love. I say it all the time. I love doing it. Uh, I take great pleasure in it. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not making me money. So uh, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars um, purchasing collections, traveling, um, and then how, who knows how many hours uh, invested. But, I, I, you know, I'm... I love doing it. It's not work to me. I actually love doing it. Wow. You know, the average video will take me five to six hours to do because there's a lot involved, and I just love doing it. It's what I do in my spare time. I'm not out in the field as much anymore, um, you know, uh, but I will get back into the field. Just the timing's not right for me for, with various things going on. But um, you know, it's very, it, it's it's just something I love. Sitting at home and making the videos is something I enjoy, and listening to the old old presentations, it's. It's just uh, mm-hmm. it's thrilling. Definitely fascinating. You know, and we really do appreciate everything that you have done and what you do now. And I'm sure in the future you're probably going to come upon some stuff. Now, Thomas, have you sent him some of your stuff? Actually, I got a lot of stuff I think he'd like. <laughs> mm-hmm. I- I, I told Thomas I would I would buy his collection. Just give me the word, and uh, no, no, Tom, no, 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 no. Thomas said you can have it for ten million, and that's just out of my price range. Won't <laughs> <laughs> have to pay a cent, sir. You won't have to pay a cent. I just I'll decide. I, I've got a lot of people after me to do about this stuff once I pass, and uh, <laughs> of course there's a. You know, the museum in Harrison wants a lot of the, the posters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got tons of VHS and VHS tape that I've totally forgotten about. And uh, I don't have a VHS player anymore, so I haven't even been able to look at it myself for 10 years. Yeah, um, yeah, I think uh, Todd would be a logical choice for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a huge project just waiting to happen. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I welcome that anytime, Thomas, but, uh, you know, I understand... Uh, that you will decide what is best for your mm-hmm. your collection, uh, and and I will trust your judgment on that. All right, man. Well, and of course, uh, if you ever come show. out to see again, you make sure you stop by here. You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll bring a VCR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I've got sit. I've got well, one Tom- sitting right beside my Dell computer. <laughs> see, he's ready. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we really appreciate you coming on, Todd. We'd love to have you back, um, you know, just to hear you and Thomas talk about some of the stuff from the old days. It's so fascinating, and um, we'd love to have you back. I'd love to be back. I, I appreciate it. Thanks. Awesome. Well, Thomas, I'll let you wrap it up. Well, I can say is I recommend anyone who has an interest in the Sasquatch mystery or the Sasquatch phenomenon or however you want to describe it, you, Todd Prescott's The Sasquatch Archives is a must-watch. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. And Thomas, as always, it's been um, very eye-opening. <laughs> I always learn a lot. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, thank Todd. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll be back uh, again with an upcoming show with Ben Radford, so stay tuned for that. That'll be in a couple weeks, and um, I'm sure that'll be an interesting show as well. And then, of course, we'll try to get Todd back as soon as we can. Thank you all for listening to the show, and we appreciate you. Send any questions, comments, or show ideas, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just drop me a line, julie.wrench at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for listening.